Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to the post-Wimbledon wrap-up show for Tennis with an Accent. Uh, we have uh, Mark Atunga joining from London, who, where he was covering uh, the Wimbledon Championships. And we have Andrew Burton uh, joining from uh, Houston, Texas. Uh, welcome, guys. Uh, thanks for doing this on a Monday evening, and it's probably midnight in London. Hello, Saki. Glad to be here. This is Mark. Yeah, this is Andrew. Right, so obviously, there, there are a lot of talking points when a championship of this magnitude, uh, you know, goes into the books, and uh, we all have been talking about everything and anything that transpired at the lawns. So let's just right, uh, take a good dive into the action. And uh, Novak Djokovic and Angelique Kerber uh, have been crowned champions. So Andrew, I'll start with you. I know we spoke about the Anderson Federer match few few days ago. Where would this win rank in uh, Djokovic's uh, in already astonishing career? And how important is Marian Vaida's return to this? Because a lot of time in this era of super coaches, uh, you know, your regular coach sometimes, they do get the credit, but they're just not as uh, talked about. Maybe because they are the coach, they're not the super coach. Yeah, well, I, I think um, tick and tick, uh, it will rank very high for Djokovic among his his grand slams when he looks back on this. Um, he's been in the wilderness for a while. This was his first tournament win since Eastbourne last year. The grass court warm-up tournament before Wimbledon. He had to leave Wimbledon, um, pulling out from his match with uh, Thomas Berdick with an elbow injury. He then took time off to rest, tried to come back, um, at the start of the year at Melbourne, uh, obviously had difficulties there, uh, had uh, an elbow procedure. Uh, we're not exactly sure what happened there, but came back at Indian Wells in Miami, had very little fortune there. That led to the end of his coaching relationship with... Andre Agassi and Radek Stepanek. And at that time, I think if you'd have put some money down on Novak winning one of the tournaments, the, the major tournaments, you'd have got pretty good odds. But calling Vida, which he did just before the start of the clay season, turned out to have been a masterstroke. And uh, we didn't, I think... Um, see a dramatic return to form by Djokovic at the start of the clay court season, but by the end of the, the clay season, uh, you know, he'd acquitted himself very well in Roland Garros. Then he he played Queens, the warm-up tournament, and made the final, had a match point against Matt no slouch on the grass. And then throughout the uh, the Wimbledon Championships, Djokovic looked in increasingly good nick, up to and including a two-day win over Rafael Nadal under the roof uh, in the semi-final. You and I, Saki, had talked about Federer's uh, epic defeat to Anderson in five sets, and I think if uh, if someone had predicted that uh, that would be probably the fourth-ranked five-set uh, match from the quarterfinal onwards, you'd have gotten some raised eyebrows. But you had the Del Potro against Nadal match. You had the Isner against uh, Anderson match, which went 26-24 in the other semifinal. And then you had Djokovic-Nadal in the, uh, the second semifinal. And then Djokovic... A comfortable winner, I think, in his uh, final match against Anderson. Anderson, for the first couple of sets, looked like he he was a shadow of the player who'd beaten Federer and had taken it to, to Isner. The, they warmed up uh, at least a contest in the third set, and Anderson had multiple set points. Didn't acquit himself poorly, but Djokovic looked to be, for much of that match, in cruise control until the very final game. So I think that that's going to be uh, uh, certainly a, a feather in both men's caps, Djokovic's and Marjan Vida, and I hope Vida has a very good agent. Yeah, and he's uh, there for all 13 majors, even during the Boris Becker 
partnership. You know, they won six, but Vaira never left the house. And, uh, you know, so he's definitely been the cornerstone for Djokovic. And uh, it's good to see this partnership, you know, getting its due. Uh, Murd, let me ask you an extension of what I just asked Andrew. Uh, you wrote even a very insightful uh, match analysis for Tennis with an Accent with the classic semifinal between Rafael Nadal and, and Djokovic. Uh, you followed these players like, you know, most of us, and you sometimes had the best seat in the house. You watched them close enough. Uh, I'm going to just ask you because I read your analysis. Djokovic definitely, uh, to me, in this match, he was a resilient uh, player when behind and he showed a lot of mental fortitude. He fought and he's always, I think, at his best when the crowd's, you know, not pulling for him. And this was a pro Rafa Nadal crowd. Uh, d- did you notice Djokovic's game uh, on offense? He wasn't as composed and confident. Uh, and then, uh, but he still got to. Got the got you know got the better of Nadal, who I think was playing some of his most explosive, aggressive tennis when the match resumed the next day. So how did those levels combine together to produce uh, this kind of a match? Because Djokovic in the past was a very tough match for Nadal. It's not a difficult question, you know, in in terms to put Nadal like uh, who was such a favorite. But did you see it the same way uh, that Novak is still not playing the tennis he once was? But he, he was playing this match more as a defensive player because uh, his backhand and ground strokes weren't dictating, which was the case in that three-year window when he beat Nadal eight or nine times in a row. Yes, but that's that was a direct extension of the way, uh, just like you said, the way the way Nadal started, uh, not just the, the, on the Saturday session, but the Friday session too. Both sessions, uh, Friday started, uh, I'm sorry, Nadal started very aggressively. Uh, especially the beginning of the match on Friday, uh, he came out firing uh, both on serves and ground strokes, not just forehand, but on the backhand side too. So by, uh, you know, just as a response to that, Djokovic may have, uh, may have looked like he's, uh, he started on a, on a more defensive position during rallies. But, it, but uh, if you, if you notice though, as soon as the rallies begin, what Djokovic ends up doing, maybe for a shot or two, he stays on defense but then the, if the first chance that he gets, he will extend that backhand down the line deep to, to, to Nadal's backhand, or he will be on the stretch with his legs wide open, actually, you know, reaching for his forehand and hitting a sharp cross-court angle to, uh, to Nadal's backhand and then immediately put you know, Rafa back on, the, on, on defense. So in terms of the beginning of the, uh, of the rally, I can agree with that. But I, I, I'm not sure that I would call the whole match um, – Played um, or not? Not that anybody said he, he you know, he he played the the whole match on defense, but uh, he was able to produce some offense himself. Also, in fact, he came to the net um, quite a few times when uh, when he got some short balls. Whether he was successful there or not is uh, is uh, depends on how the, how the points developed or what kind of drop shot he hit. But uh, but uh, he. The, the, the points where Nadal was able to put him on defense from the very beginning to the end, he was actually quite successful. And some of those ended up in drop shots that uh, that Djokovic could not get to. I don't know what the um, what the end count was on the on the points that uh, Rafa hit a drop shot in, but I know that he won a large majority of them. But outside of those, no, Djokovic was still able to make some leadway. Uh, especially when he was be able to be a build some of the patterns that he likes from the baseline when they're rallying. So I'm 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 more fifty fifty on that. I don't believe um, uh, I I believe that Rafa got to play some o- offense simply because he started both Friday and Saturday sessions more aggressively than he usually does. But uh, Djokovic turned things around pretty quickly, in my opinion. Okay, so that's very interesting. Let's stick with this match for one more question. It's the same question I'll uh, give you both, Andrew. You can go first. Uh, where does this match rank in the epics that Nadal and Djokovic have played? Because I know the sentiment in Twitter was this match was of the highest quality. I'll add my two cents. I think this match had the great context uh, with Djokovic winning and uh, also in the, in the majors race between Federer and Nadal. But I don't think this was the best Djokovic-Nadal match. Uh, I, I don't think it was even close. It was great, but I don't think it was that good that uh, some of the clay court matches they played and even the Australian Open final. What do you think, Andrew? Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd have the Australian Open final. I'd also have the Miami um, Masters final uh, back in 2011, which is, I thought, the first match where Djokovic um, really faced down Nadal by 
showing that he could beat him with consistency and with his legs. He'd actually come back to win the Indian Wells final uh, two weeks before that. But the Miami match was something where Djokovic really established a kind of dominance over Nadal, which he hadn't enjoyed before. So, you know, probably somewhere in the top five, but not top one for me. Mark? I, I would, I would uh, pretty much agree with, uh, with Andrew. The matches that he mentioned were phenomenal matches. If we were to take it in, in patches, uh, I would, there are some parts of this match that I would definitely rank as candidates to be the top patches, the, the, the third set tiebreaker. I would even mention the first game of the fourth set on Saturday morning that lasted 16 minutes. It was sky high quality. I would mention the first, uh, the first eight games of the first set of the match. Uh, so yeah, there are some parts of this match. In fact, some large patches of this match were, where I thought the quality was as high as it's ever been in any other Novak versus Rafa match. But I would not rank this uh, this match as as the as a top match either, simply because of the Saturday part, uh, large large portion of the fourth set. In fact, I would call I would say the whole fourth set except the first game was uh, was not at the top quality, and probably the fifth set all along. Some of the returning and some of the ground strokes were not in the quality of the of the evening before. Uh, the the highest quality that these two guys have ever played in for me was the second and third sets of their U.S. Open finals in 2011, where um, Djokovic uh, beat uh, Nadal pretty badly on the, in the first set, and Nadal s- started climbing back and, and uh, still lost the second and 6-4. And then they played a third set that went to a tiebreaker won by Nadal, where I thought it was, uh, was uh, space-level tennis. But, uh, yeah, that's my th- those are my thoughts. No, I think those are some of the good matches. I'd also mention honorable mention for the 2009 Madrid semifinals. Uh, I think that was a three-hour affair. Uh, to me, a lot of people still talk about that match as uh, one of you know the groundbreaking matches of this uh, clash. Uh, and let's wrap the men's side of the story by I'm going to ask you, uh, what are some of the other important takeaways or, or anything impressive that you saw in these championships uh, besides from Djokovic, Nadal, and Anderson, some of the other men, and let's even leave Federer out of this. Was, were there any uh, performances that you know that that are going to stay with you during the fortnight from the men's side? Andrew, you can go first. Well, you have to talk about John Isner, um, who put up a tremendous fight in the semi-final. Isner, I remember after his win in Miami, I thought that he was going to be a contender uh, in the hard court and grass court and so it proved I mean it took a tremendous effort by Anderson to get past him Uh, beyond that we have to talk really uh, about the people who weren't there Uh, Dimitrov went out early Zverev went out early and Milos Raonic uh, fell in the the quarterfinals Nick Kyrgios went out early. So when you're looking at the potential young guns that can challenge for the majors, they didn't make it through. And Novak Djokovic, age 31, was the youngest player in the semifinals, and that with Federer out. So the the finals had four men uh, aged 31 and above. So that's where the ATP is right now. Well, we'll come back to the lost uh, boys and, you know, the generation analysis, which Andrew uh, has always delivered you know, some very insightful pieces. We'll, you know, we'll just come back to that. So, Mert, uh, any, anyone in particular that stood out besides the names Andrew mentioned? Uh, any youngsters? Like, what do you think of Sitsipas? So, yeah, I was just going to mention Sitsipas in, in a group of other guys that probably got mentioned a lot in the first first week. So by the time the second week ends, we tend to forget or we, we just simply feel like they've already been talked about, but they, they, they deserve to be mentioned again. I would like to mention one guy that, uh, that I usually end up mentioning as, as, a, as, an, as an underachiever, but uh, in this tournament he did well. Is Gael Monfils, the, French, uh, the Frenchman. He, uh, he almost beat – I mean, he played a very match, close match with Anderson. He had a good run to the fourth round. And uh, he, he played a great match against Anderson and could have beaten him, but was very close to beating him. And it would have been interesting to see him play uh, Roger Federer. 
But more than him, I would like to mention uh, that I mean, for me, the two the two highest honorable mentions should go to Sitsipas, who went to the um, to the first, second, third, fourth round, and he looked good doing it. In other words, he uh, he uh, he didn't just uh, win playing well, but he actually outplayed his opponents in different patches of the match. And he didn't play, you know, he played fairly uh, strong um, opponents. For example, in, in the second round, he played um, Jared Donaldson, who's, who's, who's a pretty good player. Uh, I think he's underrated Donaldson, to be honest. And and, they, and he played, I, I saw the first two sets of that match and Tsitsipas, you know, absolutely uh, bludgeoned them for those two sets. Now, so I didn't see the third set, so he lost that third set. And by the time I started looking at it again on replay, I watched the fourth and fifth sets. He, um, uh, Donaldson was playing well, and Sitsipas lost the fourth and still found it in himself to to come back and win it in the fifth. And then he follows that up with a with a you know straight set clear kill of uh, Fabiano six two six one six four. And he only and he only lost to Isner six four seven six seven six, which is not a shame to uh, you know when you lose to Isner in the fourth round on, at, at Wimbledon. The other guy that I'd like to mention, and he did it the old-fashioned way, is by is, is through qualifying by winning three matches in qualifying and another uh, three matches in um, in the main draw, and going all the way to the fourth round is uh, Mackenzie McDonald, the the American who did it in a non-flashy way. It, no, hardly anyone knew about his run. Hardly anyone knew about him. He doesn't have anything big. He's not a big guy. He doesn't have a huge serve. He's just a, he's just your uh, blue collar worker who got, gets a lot of returns in. And his returns is the best uh, stroke in uh, in his game. He's got good footwork, and he went all the way to the fourth round and lost to Raonic. And I'm willing to bet that most people who watched Wimbledon still hasn't heard his name or has never watched him play a point. And the guy was very efficient. And of course, we have to, we have to also mention Gulbis, who did the same, who went through qualifying and won three more rounds. He beat he beat Zverev. And ended up losing to Nishikori finally uh, uh, in a tough fourth round match matches. I mean, the, those guys did deserve uh, honorable mentions. Absolutely, and uh, interesting you said about uh, Monfils and uh, Isner. So you think there's a correlation of uh, you know the hot weather which allowed the grass to be firmer and hard, you know, high bounce. So is there is this a coincidence that both these guys who never made the second week of Wimbledon had their best Wimbledons ever? No, it's, it's. I don't think it's a coincidence. I think it's possible, and uh, I, I believe, if I'm not wrong, Monfils also went to the semifinals of of the Antalya Open, uh, the, right the week before. So it's. It wasn't just he didn't. You know, he played what six matches also in those two weeks himself. Okay. So uh, yeah, I do think it. I do think it helps, and and Monfils was also a bit more aggressive himself, which uh, which he doesn't usually do. He, you know, he was he was willing to attack and come in and use his serve. And some of his big forehands, in, in my opinion, not enough. He should be doing it more, but uh, he definitely he was more aggressive here. Mm. So, Andrew, that brings us to the generation study, and uh, Anderson is definitely the biggest example. Uh, which uh, class of generation does he represent? And just you know, walk us through some of the interesting numbers that happened during this uh, fortnight, as far as various generations go. Yeah, so Anderson is is a, an example. So he's generation Rafa. Uh, he's 32 years old, a little bit like uh, Stan Wawrinka as someone who is, is very much a late developer. So when you take a look at the ATP generations, all four of the semifinalists were generation Rafa. Uh, you had uh, Milos Raonic was one player's um from Generation Grigor, who made it through to the quarterfinals. Uh, the other one was Kane Ishikori, uh, and both of those fell at the quarterfinal stage. Interestingly, uh, Generation Grigor was the most represented of all of the, the generations. They had 51 of the 128 players in the main draw. Uh, that was their highest ever. Uh, up from 43 in 2016. Generation Rafa starting to age out. They had uh, 34 this year, down from their peak, which was 2013 of uh, 66. 
generation lick starting to trend upwards. 28 this year, that's the most that they've ever had. Generation Fed starting to age out, as you would expect. Um, but when it came to the overall points one, Generation Grigor only got about 20% of the, of the points. That's down from the highest they've gotten at any of the Wimbledons, which was 30% in 2016. But you would expect uh, a generation at their peak to be getting somewhere between 50 to 60% of the points. So Generation Grigor is, is way behind the points tally you would expect them to get at the moment. And what's quite interesting is that Generation Nick, you would expect them to be starting to make a move, and they only got about 13% of the overall points won at uh, the ATP tournament this year. So between Generation Nick and Generation Grigor, only about a third of the points, with the lion's share going to Generation Rafa. So you really ask the question, is Generation Rafa somehow this, this amazing generation that came in early in the mid-2000s and won't go away, or is the younger generation just not up to snuff? Mm. Amar, do you have anything to say or ask Andrew about the generation analysis? No, I don't, Andrew. Andrew does this, uh, does this very well. And, uh, I, but the only thing I would have to add here, uh, I don't know if the, uh, I'm not sure if the, it's exactly in correlation with Andrew, but certainly uh, has, has a as a relation to it is I'm, I'm just wondering, this is just a speculation on my part, but uh, the, 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 the players that are successful here, the players that reach the semifinals and the two finalists and um, the players that are 30 years or older, these are guys who have uh, entered the pro ranks when five set did not seem playing five set matches did not seem like an anomaly. In other words, they, yes, there were five set matches in majors, but there was five, there were they also faced five set matches in um, in uh, in Davis Cup. And then the idea of playing five set matches in the finals of regular tournaments, and there were some non one thousand tournaments that were that had five set finals too in the early two thousands. It was just not that big an anomaly. And nowadays, the only time that you get to play a five-setter is when you when you're when you're in a major. So I'm just wondering if some of these guys are just simply it's taking them longer to adapt to uh, to to the you know to the environments of uh, of playing majors and to just to the idea of uh, playing five-setters. And um, I just think that the, maybe the gap has widened be, between. Players like Nadal, Federer, Djokovic, or Isner, or or Anderson, who at their in their youth, when they first entered the pro ranks, playing a five set was not considered a, considered an anomaly. Was not rare. Just not on, only during majors. And um, and now and, and and the youngsters of today, the other generations, the younger generations that Andrew talks about. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if that has an effect on them. That in, in that it takes them longer to 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 adapt to the idea, to the concept of playing five-set matches. Okay, so and before we, uh, you know, make our move to the women's side of the draw, uh, you know, we have to talk about Roger Federer. Uh, we won't spend too much time, but, you know, this has to be mentioned. He came in as an overwhelming favorite, uh, maybe not as big uh, in hindsight. Uh, so, Andrew, what do you think he goes from here? You think, is this a blessing in disguise? Of course, uh, losing Wimbledon can never be a blessing, but do you think this gives him enough time to, you know, uh, to, to, you know, to launch his uh, preparations for the hardcore swing? And do you expect him to play two events like last year? I know it's all speculation, but where does he go from here? Um, what's that saying? That if it's a blessing in disguise, it comes very well. Disguised. I don't think that uh, it will change his plans for the hardcores. Uh, I think last year that it was a little bit surprising that he set up to play two hardcore tournaments before the US Open, but that was when he was chasing the number one spot. The number one spot is gone now. Nadal has locked that in for, for quite a length of time with his performance at Wimbledon and because Federer lost the 2,000 points that he had for winning Wimbledon last year and picked up 360 for a quarterfinal. So my expectation is that 
he'll play one hard court tournament. I think it'll be Cincinnati where he tends to do better. And then he'll play the US Open and play a measured schedule, probably one of the uh, the indoor uh, masters. If you, if you think of Shanghai as partly indoor, I could see him playing Labor Cup, Shanghai, Basel, and then the, the World Tour Finals. Uh, so, Mert, uh, another question on Federer with a slightly different outlook. You think at this stage of his career, is it slightly better for him? I know he loves the pressure of being the favorite, but now with Djokovic totally back in the conversation, Nadal is a defending champion. So, all three of them can go as co-favorites. Of course, a lot of tennis will be played in Toronto and Cincinnati. But do you think for Federer, is it a slightly better mindset that he won't be the, exactly the man to beat? He will be one of the three or four? No, I don't think so. I think I think a player likes it better when he has less enemies hanging around. So the fact that Djokovic, the fact that Djokovic is back at at its at his full form and now he's facing both Nadal and Djokovic is not good news. It's uh, you know the, the, of course it, this is not to say that he sits there and wishes that other other players would be injured or out, but any player. This is not just about Federer. Ex player, uh, subconsciously or consciously. If he has to face Y, Z uh, at their top level and he has had trouble or at least they're, they're his best challengers, he'd rather just have Y, the, the prospects of uh, facing Y in, uh, in the next tournament than have both Y and Z. So, um, no, with, with, with Djokovic in the picture, I don't think it makes him, it makes, it puts him in any more adv- advantageous situation. No, what I meant was, uh, is he less of a favorite, and maybe then he puts less pressure on himself? I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not sure in in what way. I um, I don't think it. I don't think he's in. Uh, when he goes out and plays the quarterfinals or semifinals of U.S. Open, he's not going to be in any less pressure because there's still Djokovic and Nadal in the draw versus if there was just Djokovic or if there was just Nadal. Is that is, is that yeah. what you mean? Yeah, it's a the question. So let's talk about uh, the WTA side of things. Uh, it was a, a very different tournament than what we've had in the past in other majors. A lot of big names, you know, did not make the second week. And uh, so, Mert, let's talk about Serena Williams. Uh, I mean, she she was one win away from a very spectacular win. And when you know, and when we use the word spectacular for Serena, you know, it has to mean spectacular because you know she has done a lot of other things that are spectacular. So you think in, in this comeback trail, this was like one match too many, like we've discussed, you know, in, in our offline chats. Uh, it was just like a day where she, you know, she could use more matches. The rhythm was slightly off and nothing to take away from Kerber. But uh, it was just, uh, yeah, just one match too too many at this point. Yes, Sakiba, I, I agree, especially if, if you have to play someone who can all of a sudden negate your best uh, your best weapon, which is your serve. And I, 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 first of all, I cannot believe that uh, Serena went this far and and what did it so well, looking that good after you know ha- having only played so so little in so long. So full credit to Serena for going that far. But at the but at the end of the day, in the finals, he need, he ended up playing uh, a player who took away his best shot, his her serve. Uh, I, I don't have the the, uh, the stats in front of me, but um, Kerber at one point was getting, if, if I'm not wrong, she or, or at least just from watching it, it seemed to me like she was getting every single serve back. No matter how great Serena's serve was, Kerber would get the return back in play, and then Serena would have to build up the point from the second shot on. And uh, and I think that presents a huge problem to Serena when you take when you take her. Um, the free points from her serve away, which, by the way, hardly anyone ever gets to do. This it, it was such a such a rare um, such a rare day for that for for that to happen. And then you know, if you can, if you can pull that off, you can win. And it so happened to come at the end of a of a long run of a long impressive run for Serena to reach the finals of, of Wimbledon. You know, she had some tough matches before. She turned around some matches, and and she came back against. A couple of players who were playing very well. So uh, yeah, it's it's. Not only was it perhaps one match too many, but perhaps one challenge too many. Fair enough. So uh, Andrew, uh, over to you. Uh, were there any performances throughout the fortnight on the women's draw, or any performers in particular that you know uh, you're going to uh, 
leave with as your takeaways from this uh, these championships? I think that the the women's game is in in an interesting moment because you have several players. So Ostapenko uh, made it through to the semifinals after being unable to defend her, her Roland Garros uh, title. You have uh, Kazakina made it through to the quarterfinals. Both of those players lost to the eventual champion Kerber. Kazakina was one of the, the players who uh, competed for a title at Indian Wells earlier this year, the other one being uh, Naomi Osaka, who, who won that, that tournament. So there, there, are, there are several up-and-coming players who are going to be competing for championships in the next two or three years, but they aren't consistently bringing tournament after tournament. One of the stats that I took a look at was the number of players who've made it through to the uh, semi-final stages in the Grand Slam so far. And on the women's side, 10 players have done that. Only Kerber and Halip have made more than one of the major semi-finals this year. On the men's side, what's interesting is only Nadal has made it through to more than one semi-final. So both both tours at the moment are going through periods of what I think of as low stability, that you're, you're having multiple players challenge for the, the chance to win a major crown. Now, this time around, it was, it was two members of the, the older guard, Kerber and Serena Williams. If Williams stays fit, one of the things that she's done throughout her career is be in there at the final stages. And it'll be interesting to see if someone like Ostapenko, like Sloane Stevens, who went out early this year, if they can make it through consistently to the, the, the later stages of these tournaments. You had several players. I thought Sybil Kova did extremely well to back up her own disappointment at, at being bumped from the seeding. Uh, that was a, a little bit of minor controversy uh, at the start of the, the tournament. You had uh, Van Uitvank. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but she had a, a, a very good run. Uh, Makarova had a good run at the start of the tournament. So those are some of the names that I would throw up. Uh, Mert, do you want to add with some of the names that impressed uh, you throughout these championships for different reasons? Uh, who are the unsung you know, players who didn't get their due, and it doesn't have to be a second-week performance. Yes, now I, I would mention CM, who beat uh, Simona Halep the first, uh, uh, coming back from match point down and reached and reached the fourth round. She ended up losing to Sibukova, but she's uh, she's had a good tournament. And uh, there, of course, there are some other names. You know, Georgie had a great tournament and had a great first set against Serena Williams. In fact, was very close to winning. There was there was a key game where uh, in the second set where she had the put away early in the in a game and didn't do it and from there on it kind of went downhill but she didn't really you know fade away either she stayed with her just lost just lost the both sets on after one serve service breaks uh i but uh, i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna have to go back to i'm gonna have to go back to kerber what what she's done is uh incredibly impressive she beat Kessa, she beat three players to win the tournament with completely uh different you know, just different types of players. She 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 beat Kasatkina in the quarterfinals, six three seven five. In what I thought was the was one of the highest quality matches of, of the tournament. You know, it and it finished six three um, seven five. But I'm, quite frankly, I, I wish I, I wish at that time it were a three out of five setter because I wanted to see more of it. The, the, especially in the second set, the, the tennis quality reached sky high. But Kasakina is very impressive, and what she tried to do on grass courts, because she's a very versatile player, she, she put her uh, touch tennis aside, and she tried to actually get, get aggressive and, um, and use her angles and, 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 uh, and, and power, if you can call Kasakina's power, because she's got top spin on, she doesn't really hit the ball flat, 
but she almost pulled it off. I mean, she almost won that second set playing perhaps the kind of game that she doesn't prefer to play. She played very well, and Kerber still had answers to her. And Kasatkina is not a player who, who, who throws one plan to you. She has a plan A, that, that plan B, plan C, and she throws all of those to you. And Kerber had an answer to that. And then she went out and played an inform Ostapenko and took her out 6-3, 6-3, although Ostapenko's game plan kind of suits Kerber, you know. And um, and then she and then she goes out and beats Serena, negating um, Serena's serve, exposing a little bit Serena's forward and backward footwork. And uh, just just a really smart player, Angelina Kerber. I mean, she, 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 she's got uh, a few shots that other players don't have, but they're not necessarily your big winning shots, but they're just specialty shots. You know, her forehand down the line, for example, everyone talks about her. Her forehand down the line is not just a forehand down the line. It's an outside curving forehand down the line. And it's a lefty forehand, which means you have to not only run to it, but you have to chase behind it because it curves to the outside. She can, dr- she can drop shots. And she can she can hit that running sharp crossboard forehand. She's she's just really really impressive the way she won uh, Wimbledon in the last three matches. She now has a set of three majors. She's a Roland Garros win away from cur- completing a career slam, and we'll definitely be uh, you know keenly following her progress. Mert, uh, uh, before we switch to some of the questions that uh, or some of the topics that we're doing rounds in in the fan and media forums. Uh, which triggers some controversy and some, you know, debate. Uh, are there any juniors that are impressive uh, in, on your watch and that you may want to share a couple of names for, with, with, the, with the audience here? The girl's winner, Iga Sviatek. If you haven't watched her, you are missing something. You need to, uh, you need to watch her as soon as you can, find, the, you know, f- f- find some chance to, uh, to see her play. She's got... Um, She's, she's, she's a very versatile player, too. And I don't want to say really she has this good, that good. She's just a very creative player with a lot of strokes. She's got a lot of um, pretty much every shot in the book. She's not afraid to come to the net. Uh, she has solid footwork, could even get better. And, uh, and she produces some, some shots that you see veterans on the WTA produce from the baseline. So uh, it's, she, she's very impressive. I would, that's the number one uh, name, name that I would mention. Now, on the, on the boys' side, if you saw the final, it was, it, was, it was a great final. I watched it on replay later. I didn't see it at the right way it was played. And uh, I only watched the second and third sets. But, I, of course, Sang is a very good player. Very, very, very solid. And uh, you know, he's, he's not dominating the, bo- the boys. So he, his, his name must be mentioned. But, you know, I just mentioned the two winners. I didn't get to watch most of the early rounds, so I can't really come up with any other players. I did watch some of the boys' doubles because there was a player involved in it uh, that, that I was interested in. But uh, I don't want to really base, um, you know, I don't want to I don't want to do too much talk just from watching the doubles. I would rather see the, how they play singles and then go from there. So, yes, I would. the number one name that I would mention is the girls' winner, Iga Swiatek. Let's bring in some of the topics that, you know, we're talk of the town during these two uh, weeks of the, of the championship. So, Andrew, uh, uh, let's start with uh, Roofgate. Uh, uh, what is that uh, you have followed through this, uh, you know, the decision-making? And, uh, and what's your take uh, when the tournament decides to put a match under the roof? And uh, it's happened before and it'll happen again. So, you think in terms of... Uh, how these decisions are made, is there enough transparency or sometimes we have a tendency to make too much out of it? What side of uh, this are you on? So let's recapitulate how we got to where we got to. The two men's semifinals were scheduled for Friday and the women's final was scheduled as usual for Saturday at 2 p.m. The first men's final went into a long fifth set and by 6.37 in the evening, people were starting to speculate about whether the two semifinals could be completed on time. Uh, By the time Anderson and Isner were at 21-all, 22-all, 
it was clear that the second semi-final wouldn't be able to finish in daylight. And in fact, when the two players did uh, finish the first semi-final, the second semi-final was started under the Wimbledon roof, there being only about an hour of, of daylight left at the time. So they ended up playing nearly three hours, completed three sets, but finished at 2-1. So then you had the question of what to do about the second semi-final in the ATP tournament and what to do about the, the women's final. Now, you, you mentioned the term transparency, and, and as far as I know, there really hasn't been any transparency about what transpired then. The tournament decided to play the second, to resume the second semi-final at 1 p.m. and to have the women's final be after the completion of the men's semi-final match. And then they were trying to decide what to do about the men's doubles and the women's doubles finals, which would ordinarily have been scheduled for that, that second, uh, for the second matches after the, the women's final. Many people, including me, thought that the tournament gave short shrift to the women's final, which is one of the premier women's events sporting's events in the world by pushing them to an, an, a time to be determined. Interestingly, the, as far as I can see, both women, when they were interviewed after finishing their, their match, said it didn't affect their preparations at all and didn't make a big fuss about it. But there was certainly a lot of controversy and had it been... Um, had I ruled the world of tennis, I think that I would have had the men go on after the women's final. Now, the second thing that was, was controversial was that having started the match under a roof, the tournament uh, referee decided to complete the match under a roof. And the, the reporting that happened beforehand was that if both players had gone to the referee and said, we would like to complete the match uh, in the open air as the weather con conditions permitted, the referee would have been able to do that. But Nadal asked in press afterwards, said that he wasn't uh, happy with it being uh, under a roof. There were, I, I, I think that Djokovic uh, was seen to have not, and I'm going to express this very carefully, not to have gone in and said, I want it to be open air. So there were some, some people holding that Djokovic preferred it to be under a roof. It was certainly entirely legitimate from, from my perspective that he say, yep, I'm perfectly happy for it to be under a roof. And that that was the way that, that it played out. But certainly some fans of Nadal uh, in social media were disgruntled by the fact that Nadal had to uh, finish the match under the roof and that this put him at a disadvantage. Uh, the, the main controversy for me was the scheduling of the women's final. As I say, if, it, if I had been running the tournament, I, I'd have said the women's final is a premier event and it takes precedence. But I don't run the, the Wimbledon. Interesting. Uh, and uh, Murd, I'm going to direct this at you now, but I'll add it. But just because we live in a day and age when there's a lot of uh, knowledge, because back in the day when tennis was on TV, we did not have this kind of discussions. I remember clearly in 88 and 89, the Boris Becker and Lendl semis two years in a row. One year, I think in 88, it was the completion of the fourth set before the ladies' final. Again, it was Graf Navratilova. And in 89, the second semi was played with rain and which resulted the women's final to be pushed on Sunday in 89. So I'm not saying it hasn't happened before or maybe, you know, since because it has happened before doesn't make it right. 
do you agree with what Andrew has said or are you okay with it? Because it was a marquee matchup. They had to put it on center court and doubles usually, you know, get sacrificed in these kind of situations. So your take on the same issue. Yes, and you remember, if you remember, we had this thing called Super Saturday. Uh, I remember very, very well, in which uh, there were two men's semifinals with the women's final squeezed in between. So, uh, yes, it, 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 it was, it, it, that, that's at the U.S. Open, by the way. But, uh, you know, women's uh, finals have uh, have often gotten the short end of the stick throughout history. That is true. And uh, and I th- I'm going to go back to there is one there is one area that I don't agree with uh, with Andrew, and I'll get to that in a second. But uh, but I think Andrew Andrew's first sentence when he started um, uh, his answer just a second ago, his great answer was the, the let's recapitulate how we got to where we got to, and that and therein lies the key. We got to this we got to this spot because Wimbledon was not willing to take the the um, the, the decisions necessary over the last few years about about putting in a fifth set tiebreaker. We would have never even been discussing this. Had there been a fifth set tiebreaker at six all, nine all, twelve all, wherever you want to have it, but and it always involves Isner. He did it in 2010. He's done a couple of times since, where third, you know, fifth sets went to 1816. I believe there was one against Songa, and it just keeps happening again and again. And 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 when when uh, Friday started at one o'clock, and Isner and Anderson were playing, who are who are both big servers. I, I know I joked around with a couple of my friends saying, oh, my gosh, what if this match goes 29, 27, 27 in the fifth or 25, 23 in the fifth? What are we going to do? And I know I wasn't the only one joking around, but there was a grain of truth in there, too, or, 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 or worry when I was making that joke. And it, and it, and it happened. So, the, you know, we got to where we got to because Wimbledon were not, was not willing to make the decision. So it's almost like everything worked out against Wimbledon or in a way to punish them for what they should have done a long time ago. Okay, but in, in any case, we got here. And uh, in Friday, you know, when the when Djokovic and Nadal started at 8 o'clock or 8.09 p.m. was when the first serve was struck. You just say that's another thing, too. I mean, if you want... If you're in a situation where you have three hours to finish a match, the last two people that you want playing against each other is Nadal and Djokovic. And there they were. So, you know, everything just went against uh, Wimbledon. Everything that they feared came down on them, maybe deservedly. But then came Friday night, and that's where everything went wrong. The only thing that they got, in fact, the only thing in everything that Andrew said that I don't agree with is the only thing that Wimbledon got right, which is the order of the of the of the men's semifinal and the women's final there was no other way to do it the women's women's uh, final is the premier event you can still leave it as a premier event and you can still have it at a set time it was it was set at two o'clock you can either move it to three o'clock but have it have the time set and don't the the problem here was to turn to change the status of the women's final to to be followed that that's that, that that's where uh, wimbledon went terribly wrong you have a set time, and you put the men's semifinals three hours before that set time. Okay, if the ideal situation for me would have been to start the men's semifinal at noon and say women's semifinal at three p.m. You could not have had the men's semifinal after the women's final at five p.m. or six p.m. or four p.m. starting. You can it, it, to to sit there and say we're going to have two players play matches three days in a row with possibly the shortest time between the second and third day, in other words, the day before the final, while we're going to have two other players who have already rested uh, a day just in the name of not moving them to an hour later at a set time, not only lacks common sense, but but, 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 but lacks any consideration for players' health. And, uh, you know, you can have the women's final move to 3 p.m. and still have it as a premier event at a set time. And, but you must play the men's semifinal before. If, if you're going to consider the, 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 players, uh, the players' health. What should have been done, and I'll, and I'll keep this very short, it should have been 12 o'clock, men's semifinals, set time, 3 o'clock, women's finals, set time, and then have the women's doubles kept on center court at a set time and have the, have the men's doubles three out of five set move to court number one. 
that would have been the most sensible thing to do. Uh, so Wimbledon yeah, has been under the gun because it's a very old school kind of place and uh, you both know it very well. You followed the game and uh, there's a lot of insinuation on social media that code assignments also, uh, there was like uh, media pressure, fan pressure. I, I doubt Wimbledon works that way, but uh, uh, I was totally fine if they had put Roger Federer on uh, court one earlier in the week and I'm still fine. I don't think that's the reason he lost that match. Uh Mert, uh, what's the feeling in the media room? And, uh, and I know you cover this championship. What do people really think when these code assignments go? And is, uh, is Wimbledon establishment too aloof? They don't really care how and what the narratives are. And, you know, and let's not forget Andy Murray didn't play this year. Had he played, we may not, we, we are not sure if Rafa Nadal would have gotten all center court matches either. So just walk us through that one. You know, there's, it's always a talking point at this time and Andrew, you can go second. Yeah, I, you know that's also uh, that's also part of uh, what what Andrew sent us. How we got to where we got to. You know, I don't understand why Rafa or Roger could not have been put on court number one in the in the first week. They, it, that should have been done. And then because they didn't do that, when the quarterfinals came, they felt uh, they felt in some way forced to put um, you know one of the two on court number one. Well, you 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 should of course between Rafa's quarterfinal against Del Potro. And, uh, and Federer's quarterfinal on, uh, against Anderson on paper, it, it only makes sense to to keep Rafa and uh, and Del Potro on center court. But they would have never been in that situation to begin with if they played one of them on court number one at some point in the first week. But they didn't. So it's it's always these these early decisions that they take without consideration that comes back to bite them later. Uh, also. Um, uh, in terms of okay, in terms of that match, that that would have uh, you know about about Federer losing to Anderson uh, on court one. The only way that would have made a difference, it would not have made a difference. I don't think from Federer's point of view, but maybe from Anderson's point of view, playing Federer on court one versus center court may have made a difference, slight mental difference. But then we would have, but then we could, then we should start making that case against a lot of you know against a lot of players. Uh, so I wouldn't put that. Um, I mean, then, then why why don't we go back and ask? Would Gilles Muller beaten? Would he have beaten Rafael Nadal on center court last year? You know, he beat him on court number one. You know, we can st- yeah. we can sit back, we can sit and, and go back and make that case for uh, just about any match. So no, I don't think that should uh, come into effect in the fact that uh, Federer ended up losing to to, to Anderson. But uh, it's it's rather uh, I'd rather keep that conversation around. Um, Around the fact that Wimbledon just makes uh, takes a lot, you know, makes a lot of wrong decisions and then ends up paying for it later. So let, let me just chip in here because I want to come back to something else. Um, I think the court controversies are, you know, a, a, a tiny, a tiny zero point zero zero three percent scientifically measured of people care about which court people go on. A lot of people are vocal about it, but hardly anyone really cares. I think one thing people do care about is the structure of tennis matches, particularly at Grand Slams. So Mert um, talked about Wimbledon not biting the bullet and going to tie-break sets. There are some very vocal proponents of doing away with advantage sets at the three majors that have them. And we also have people talking about the the place of five-set matches. We mentioned that earlier, that uh, younger players perhaps aren't as used to playing five-set matches. My own position is I would like five-set matches to be in place at the majors for men as long as they can keep them going, uh, because I think that there's uh, a tremendous value to the continuity and it is a different match to a three-set match i think the time has come to accept that having 23 and 23 21 matches or 35 33 matches in advantage set doesn't make any sense if it would again if i ruled the tennis universe i'd bring a tie break in at 12 all i could see nine all I would feel sad if they all went to six all tie breaks because I think that you have matches where competing for that final break 
is uh, is a valuable thing. The Djokovic-Nadal match this year, the famous 2008 uh, Federer-Nadal final, those were matches that were decided late in the game. So was the famous McEnroe-Borg final at Wimbledon. So I can see in the next couple of years or so saying that we'll have advantage sets, but we'll, we'll bring in a tie break later on. Uh, but I definitely want to hang on to five setters among the, the men. Uh, Mert, any response to that to further this conversation? Yeah, the only, th- the only thing that I'd like to add is, is I agree with Andrew that uh, sometimes um, – there's, you know, some of the reactions are exaggerated to certain things uh, about scheduling. And I also would like to add that I don't think players care nearly as much as fans or people on social media about which court they play on. And if, in fact, I would like to also say that uh, uh, sometimes I, 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 uh, I see opinions or I read articles in which Somehow it is discussed that a player is at a disadvantage uh, playing on center court or court number one because they've only played three of their matches there and played one match elsewhere versus another player who played all four matches there. Uh, I'm sorry, but that's just that's just absurd. A player is not going going X player is not going to beat Y player because he happened to play five of his previous six-round matches on center court and played one on court number one versus if he played three on court number one and three on center court. When he goes out and plays that seventh match on center court, that's not going to make one bit of a difference. And it's just there, there, there's a lot uh, – there's too much being made about that. Playing, five, playing four matches on a, on, on a certain court versus two matches on another court – doesn't prepare you a lot better than if you played five and one. It's just not that important. And I don't think players care. I think that makes a lot of sense. It's okay for fans, and especially I call myself a fan and I'm in that category. It's okay for fans to make an issue out of this. But a lot of time, like you said, there are articles written by people, you know, who do this uh, for a living or cover the sport. And they sometimes project this issue to be of, you know, of greater value than it probably actually is. So we can we can wrap this up. Any parting uh, parting thoughts? I'll give, go to Andrew first, and then Murd, you can go, and then I think we've covered plenty of ground today. The one parting thought that I have. So congratulations again to both of the winners uh, of the singles tournaments. The men's game, I think, is in a really interesting place. On the surface, you can say mm, the the big three still rules, uh, and You've got Andy Murray wasn't quite able to make it back. So if he has a comeback over the next few months or so, maybe we'll go into 2019 saying, is it still a big four era? But below the surface, you've, I think that you, you, you can see a transition is coming. It's just not apparent who the next great star is going to be and hasn't been apparent who the next star is going to be. So the, the, the ATP game is really balanced between continuity and transition. All right, Mert? I'm going to talk about the women's game. I, I agree with Andrew on the, on the men's side. It's fantastic. Plus, you got players like Kevin Anderson and Juan Martin Del Potro who are now serious threats to going deep in, in majors and on top of the rankings. But I'm going to come back to the women's game. Uh, it's just so exciting to look at. Uh, <clears throat> to look at, the, I mean, I, I would advise any to anyone to do this. You go to the WTA rankings and you look at the top 20 names. And um, for example, on the men's side, if you were to pick uh, the U.S. Open semifinalists, I bet most of us would still get two out of four or maybe three out of four right. Excuse me. But I would advise anybody to go to the women's side and look at top 20 and tell me for sure that they're going to see two or three or four players in the semifinals of the U.S. Open. It's a very hard pick. And, uh, and, and in fact, I would, um, I would like to see if anybody give me 
eight picks for the quarterfinals of the U.S. Open coming up, and this is assuming all players are there, you know, are not injured and physically ready, and and uh, and see if uh, four of them are still there by the time quarterfinals come around. It is a very deep top twenty, and there are a lot of names in there who are um, who can go to the final. And uh, it's going to be a very exciting hardcore season on the women's side. I'm, I, I really cannot wait. But both men and women, but especially women, because of the depth and the and the variety of types of games that uh, that there is in the top twenty. All right, I think on that note uh, we can wrap the show. And uh, I hope everyone who tunes in will enjoy the discussion. 